right, you can turn to uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 13. Uh, so I've been mentioning for a little bit that Hebrews has been the next uh, book that we were going to be going through. Um, I definitely um, really have been gaining a lot from studying Hebrews, and uh, the importance of this book has just been more evident um, the more I've read it. And I hope that our studying Hebrews will be um, a mutually edifying thing where we can just talk about this book and talk about the ideas and the exhortations and the applications beyond just the sermon itself or the sermons themselves as we go through it. Um, you'll see the uh, quote I have under the uh, Hebrew letter's name is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I think that's really the main theme of the book of Hebrews, that really the Hebrew writer is trying to get the reader to just really focus in a consistent and just almost like a lasered in way on Jesus, but also in like a very specific way. Um, and to see Jesus as being not only uh, exalted in the past, but also being active in the present. So not only is Jesus the author of our faith, like the creator uh, who opens the door of giving us the capacity to have faith and salvation, but he's actually really the one working to perfect that work. Um, so we'll, we'll see that here in chapter 13. With a lot of books, this is true of books of the Bible like other books, oftentimes you can look at the end of the book to kind of know what the whole book is about. Um, so even though chapter 12, verse 2, I think really is the central idea of the book, there's a couple things right here at the very end that I think will make it easier for us to, to go back and kind of overview and go back to the beginning of the book. Um, so chapter 13, verse 22, I think this verse really says what this letter is. So he says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. This word of exhortation, that's what the Hebrew letter is. Uh, what, what really sets the Hebrew letter apart from other letters is that it's a self-stated exhortation. Exhortation literally means to call to one side. And I think with the Hebrew letter, especially with like 12.2, the idea is we're not necessarily being called to the author side. And we'll see that in chapter one, that there is no author that's titled the entire time that this letter, um, the entire uh, length of the letter. But really the focus is, is completely on Jesus and calling us to Jesus' side. If you think about it, like if you're, if you're following somebody or if in your, you're in a mutual work with somebody, if they're busier than you and, and better at you than whatever it is you're doing, to be able to be at their side and learn from them makes it much easier to accomplish whatever task it is or like to learn how to handle it. So that's really the Hebrew letter is we're being called to Jesus' side. Um, that increases our sense of motivation. It helps us to feel stirred to act. But... The, the Hebrew word for exhortation is in other places also translated comfort or encouragement. So with the idea of an exhortation, the Hebrew letter is also going to give us comfort and encouragement to take action. It's going to give us comfort and encouragement to make applications that are not possible to make without having the comfort or encouragement of knowing Jesus' work within our faith as we may struggle or suffer in doing God's will. Go back to chapter 13 still, uh, verse 20 through 21, just the immediate verses right before that. Um, just the, the, this idea of the activity of God and being called to his side. This is another couple verses that I think really hit to the central ideas of the letter. Now the God of peace 
who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom belong or whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, So just on the idea of exhortation and being called to God's side, just notice the emphasis that God is the one shepherding, God's the one equipping, and even though we're being equipped to do his will, in verse 21, who ultimately is working? So we're being equipped to do his will so that God can work what is pleasing in his sight, not ultimately through us, although we may be the vessel, but through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory. So that's really the central thing of Hebrews is like bringing to light the activity of Jesus so that we are motivated to do as we've been equipped to do so that God can be glorified ultimately. Uh, Turn back to chapter 10, 32 through 39. This is on the condition of the audience. A lot of letters... um, You know, they're written very personally, and Hebrews is the same as these other letters that are written very personally. But in many of these personal letters, there are hints at the condition of the people who are immediately receiving the letter, and Hebrews is no different. Uh, We see that, I think, most clearly in this section, chapter 10, 32 through 39. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by uh, being made a public spectacle through approaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised." For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to to the preserving of the soul. So that kind of gives you like a frame for the kind of people these Hebrew Christians were, right? So he tells them that at one point, they were doing these like great things by faith. They were suffering greatly, sympathizing uh, as well with those who are also suffering with them. Um, In verse 34, they were even joyfully enduring the seizure of their property as they looked forward to their possession in the heavenly places based on God's promises. But then in verse 35 and 36, he brings these things up in the view that in their present circumstances, and we'll see this a lot in Hebrews, seems like these were people who were at one time very eager, very excited about their faith and about the Lord, but were growing weary and discouraged and really were in danger even of falling away completely from the faith that they were once very excited about. So chapter 13 mentions this is an exhortation, right? So I just want you to put that into your mind that this letter is meant to re-motivate people who are losing their motivation It was meant to strengthen people who are growing weak. It was meant to give hope to people who are losing sight of their hope. And really, just like verse 39, it was to keep people from shrinking back to destruction, but instead to re-motivate them to have the faith that leads to the preserving of the soul. Uh, The end of chapter 5 has a uh, famous verse that's well known from this epistle. 
where he mentions that at the point where this was written, they should have been teachers. So you just have these continuous hints that these were people who should have been progressing beyond their beginning, but were really um, withdrawing in many ways from their hope. So with that, I want to outline the letter just very briefly and just give you a very brief picture for how the Hebrew writer, writer chooses to exhort them here specifically, right? So we have people who are growing discouraged, losing their hope, not really as diligent or motivated as they used to be, and they need to be reinvigorated. So how does the Hebrew writer do that? Chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 15, there is basically one main point that he's hitting on again and again and again, and that is Jesus' high priesthood. And what I'd like to do is just briefly from chapter 2, verse 17 starting, show you consistent verses where he just keeps bringing that up over and over again. So if you want to look at chapter 2, verse 17, and I'll mention why this is so important after we just look at these verses, but I just want to show you just how central this theme is from uh, chapter 1 is it leads into this verse in chapter 2, verse 17, but this thread of this point continues on through chapter 10, verse 15. So chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And he makes a point of application from that. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, this is a quote from Psalm 110 that uh, is really central in chapters 5 and 7 particularly. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, chapter uh, 7 Chapter 7, uh, verse 17, repeats that quote. But look at chapter tw- uh, 7, 23 through 25. He's really expounding on the nature and the inheritance and the work of the priesthood in chapter 7 much more specifically. But he says, The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And we'll stop there as he continues to make that point. Uh, Turn to chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. Chapter 8, by the way, begins to more make the point of the gifts that Jesus offers through his priesthood. Uh, So chapter 9 is like the gift of his blood. Chapter 10 is like the gift of his body. Um, Chapter 9, 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Look at chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. 
It says, every, high, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Um, and shortly after that, I think, ends that section of focus on his priesthood. I think one, just one point of why there is such a focus on Jesus being a priest for us in this first big section. When you think about like God's working with the world, think like before Jesus entered the world or even in his physical ministry, think about this. Is God or was God more directly active in the world before Jesus? So like the time of Israel with like the prophets, think about Noah, maybe Abraham, David. Was God more active and directly active with nations and peoples before Jesus? Or is God able to be more active and directly and intimately active now that Jesus has ascended to heaven? When was God, when is God actually more active, more powerful, more engaged? The Hebrew writer is striving to make the point that because Jesus has inherited the nature of this priesthood, God is actually able to be more active and more engaged in our lives than he ever could be before. That's really the main focus of this first section. The next section in chapter 10 still, verse 19 um, sorry, it wasn't chapter 10, verse 15. It was chapter 10, verse 18. That was, uh, I think, ending the first major focus. So from chapter 10, verse 19 forward, Jesus' priesthood is not so much mentioned from that point forward. And just look at this phrase. Therefore, brethren, this is verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, since we have confidence. I think that's basically the rest of the letter that the rest of chapter 10 is since we have confidence because of Jesus' priesthood, because of where we are with God, how close we get to be with God, how active God is in our lives because of these things. In chapter 10, that leads us to hold fast our hope, but also to stir up the brethren. Chapter 11, that assurance leads us to identify with God's future promises and with his people. Chapter 12, that assurance leads us to find strength and joy in our suffering because we know that there's purpose within that suffering. God is active in that suffering. Chapter 13, that assurance leads us to sacrificial obedience, even when that obedience causes us to suffer because of our circumstances. So chapter 10, verse 19 and forward is more because we have assurance, because we have assurance based on Jesus' priesthood, now this, 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 to the end of the letter. Um, so go ahead to chapter 1. Uh, with all of that, um, really I'm just going to make some brief points going through chapter 1 just to introduce how the ideas of chapter 1 begin to weave into these bigger points. Uh, so in chapter 1, uh, the writer is more magnifying the majesty of Jesus so that in chapter 2, once he begins to look at Jesus more as the Son of Man in chapter 2, seeing Jesus as more relatable in how he suffered and brought us to God becomes more amazing and humbling as a result. So chapter 1 is really focused on seeing the majesty of Jesus before anything else. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. First, one of the big things in the Hebrew letter that is going to be a very consistent focus of warning and exhortation, uh, the way I've marked this in my Bible, I've just written here these words next to every time that it's exhorted to basically listen. So I like how in chapter 1, just in verse 1, the idea of focus is God speaking. And that God spoke words through the fathers at one point in all these different ways to the prophets. But now in verse 2, he's speaking to us exclusively through his son. And his words share the quality and the power of his nature, right? So he's speaking words that share in the quality and nature of his person. Um, and it really serves as the basis of conviction in this letter. Sometimes in other epistles, Paul being the writer will serve some kind of importance to the writing. But in this, in this letter, the author really is not so much important, so much as it's the relationship the audience has with God himself, which is the primary source of importance for everything else in the letter. Um, so to detail some of the things that are said here about Jesus and why these uh, qualities of Jesus would be convicting and significant with the rest of the letter. Jesus is appointed heir of all things. Everything belongs to Jesus, and Jesus is the receiver of everything by right. In the rest of the letter, he'll make the point that Jesus forfeited that right of receiving to instead give everything that he is and everything that he has to God's children who share in his nature. So although Jesus is a son who is the heir of all things, he instead chose to forfeit those rights and give everything instead. He's the creator of all things. Uh, so he has power over everything and understanding over everything. And because he's made the world, there is nothing that extends beyond his oversight. For the Hebrews, it seems like in chapter 10 that they were being discouraged specifically by their suffering, and they weren't responding to their ongoing suffering in a way that was drawing them closer to God. But if Jesus is the creator of everything, then nothing extends beyond his capability to take care of, his capability to know and to understand and work with. So him being the creator gives a great sense of faithful assurance but then he's also the perfect representative of God's nature. He's the radiance of his glory. Uh, so the father and even the father's activity, even the father's uh, passion and heart and mind can be seen through the person and the work of Jesus Christ himself, right? So God, who is even over Jesus and greater than anything, his own nature becomes relatable. It becomes known through Jesus. Um, but then he is also upholding all things in verse 3 by the word of his power. Uh, so everything is like a demonstration of God's faithfulness. His power to preserve shows God's unchangeable will. It shows the consistency and the reliability 
of God's character. And that's going to be a big theme in Hebrews, is the reliability of God's faithfulness. Um, And then in verse, uh, the end of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, Jesus' kingship holds a very specific purpose and focus. Uh, Jesus' kingship fulfills our deepest need. It fulfills our greatest need. So for Jesus to have come and made purification for sin shows that he's taken the work of, just like the quote there, perfecting our faith upon himself. So we have a king who we are near to and who seeks to be active and engaged to perfect the work that he began in the forgiveness and the purification from our sins. So just a a picture of Jesus that I think also is worth noting here. Jesus is appointed as prophet, like Moses. He's appointed as priest, but he's also appointed as king, and priest by making purification, king as ruling uh, in heaven as well. Um, But just to uh, reiterate in verses 1 through 4, everything about who Jesus is, when we see his glory, And when we understand the radiance of who he is more clearly, we gain assurance in knowing that not only is he a king, but he is a servant to our deepest and most important needs. And if we understand that he's serving our needs, it does two things. It magnifies the depth of our need so that we're more encouraged to understand our need for God. But when we understand the depth of our need as it's exhibited in the glory of Jesus' person and power, it shows the second thing, that God is compassionate and intimate in a way that serves those needs, right? So one, Jesus exposes the depth of our need. Two, the power of God's compassion and intimacy is then exhibited as Jesus meets those needs. Um, So verses 5 through 14 verses 5 through 14. Um, I'm going to start with verses 5 and 6. And this section really extends off of verse 4. If you want to really demonstrate the superiority of a person or a thing, you have to make some kind of comparison, right? So, like, if somebody worked out a little bit and, like, they could lift some things and, you know, they could put some iron on the bar and uh, do a lot of reps, you know, you might think, okay, that person seems to be pretty strong. But then if they go into a gym where people like live there and like everybody's like bench pressing 300 pounds and let's say this person could really only bench like 150 pounds, then comparatively when they go into that new gym with all these people who are like really strong, comparatively then it's not really impressive anymore, right? And I think angels in verse 4, comparatively, when we're thinking about like righteous servants of God who clearly have power, who clearly have a very important role in God's purpose and his plan through time, really that's about the highest possible uh, comparison that you can possibly make. So the rest of this chapter is just really striving to make it very evident how comparatively greater Jesus is than angels. So verses 5 and 6. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, he shall be a son to me. Uh, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So verse 5 is quoting Psalm 2. 
And Psalms is kind of an interesting book. The Psalms are what's quoted the most in this chapter and really through this entire book. Uh, The second quote of verse 5, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me, is a quote of 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 when David wanted to build God a temple. And God then in response told David that he was going to build him a house instead and raise up one of his descendants who was going to sit on his throne forever. And that son who was going to be raised up was going to be like a son to God himself and God would be a father to him. When the Jewish people would think of the idea of like a son of God, really that's what would come to their mind. Not just generally the fact that like mankind are sons and daughters of God, but much more specifically that there was a promise that a son would rule forever on the throne of David. And then that in verse 5 relates to Psalm 2 as well, because Psalm 2 is another psalm that relates this son to also a ruler. If you want to turn back to Psalm chapter 2 to see that. Um, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is the verse that's quoted. But if you just look before in verse 6, this is God speaking in verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then in verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So as the writer quotes these psalms and magnifies the rule of Jesus being above angels, even to the point where the angels as well are in subjection to the rule of Jesus. I think one of the primary things, the psalms and the way that they're written, it can be difficult at times to really understand the separation between the psalmists themselves and things that are messianic and relate to the Christ. And that's actually important to the nature of the Hebrew letter. The point, I think, is we can't necessarily relate to the nature of angels. But Jesus, who is king, who upholds everything, who created everything, who knows everything, who has power over everything, who is able to conquer everything, we can actually relate to and share in the nature of that son and that king. And because the king of all things, has shared in our nature, not only can we relate to him, but he more than angels can also relate to us. And as we understand our needs, he also even better than us understands those needs and how to meet them, right? So I think that's the importance of quoting the Psalms in a sense is how intertwined the nature of the psalmists as men were with so much messianic prophecy threaded within the Psalms themselves. Um, Verses 7 through 12. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Um, So in verses 7 through 12, it starts with this, Uh, image of the angels, of uh, them being like servants to God 
who are like flames of fire and winds. It can be kind of complicated to work out why the angels would be compared to those images specifically. But I think like the, the main focus is really contrasting the idea of one, reliability, and again, rule. So in verse 7, angels are described as being his. So even angels with all of their strength, with the speed of how they're able to accomplish God's purpose, with their power to punish, and I think that may be the idea of being a flame of fire, still all that power, all that speed, all the uh, capability that angels have, even they are in subjection as servants to the purpose of the king, who in verse 8 has a throne that can never be overthrown. Not only can his uh, authority not be overthrown, but in verse 9, the quality of his rule is unchanging. He hates lawlessness, loves righteousness, and has the oil of gladness above all who are under his subjection. And in verse 10 through 12, his faithfulness is contrasted to even nature. Um, So earlier in the chapter in verse 3, it was mentioned that he upholds everything, But even nature and its reliability, all the laws of nature, the rotation of the planets and just how things just continue since the beginning as they always have, even the faithfulness of the throne of Jesus is uh, greater than the faithfulness of nature. Um, In verse 12, that's a phrase and an affirmation that really fits within a greater theme of the book of Hebrews that Jesus' work, his ministry as a priest is always the same. It is fully reliable in who Jesus came to be in the flesh and who he proved to be as he was crucified is the same active priest that he is now in the heavenly places just as it was, as, just as it was exhibited that he was when he lived in the flesh as well. Um, verse 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So verse 14, again, is kind of an unusual verse. Seems like it's inferring that angels are specifically sent by God as servants to the seed of Abraham, those who would inherit salvation, and that their work still serves this greater purpose that God has for us to inherit the fullness of his promises. But that's still compared to what's said in verse 13. So although the uh, angels are serving the purpose of those who would inherit salvation, Jesus is a conquering king. And that Jesus is active as a king to conquer and subject those who are his enemies underneath his rule. I think the idea is that Jesus is working and fighting with the purpose expressed in chapter 1, verse 3. Um, He purified us from our sins, completed that work, and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, In verse 13, the quote comes from Psalm 110. And if you want to turn there, this is actually a psalm quoted uh, earlier in the sermon. We looked at chapter 5 and chapter 7 when uh, the writer quoted that Jesus would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So in Psalm 110, that's actually where that quote comes from as well. Um, 110 verse 1 is where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the verse that was quoted at the end of chapter 1. Um, But we'll read through verse 4. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So you have this duality of promise in Psalm 110 that's very unusual. Not only was the Messiah, the Christ of this psalm, promised to be a king reigning at God's right hand, but in verse 4, promise that's only found here in the entire Bible, this Christ would also serve as priest, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. The idea when you get back to Hebrews chapter 1 is again that Jesus is not just a king sitting around and lounging in the heavenly places, but he's actually committing himself to a work, not only a work of conquering, but even subjugating us to his rule by the forgiveness of our sins, washing and purifying our sins so that we could serve him. And just like in Psalm 110, volunteer freely in holy ray as the youth of the dawn. Um, so one major application um, from Hebrews chapter 1, just kind of taking into mind this picture that the Hebrew writer has given, looking at different angles of Jesus' majesty, his faithfulness, his power, his, his activity in conquering and purifying from sin. Turn to Psalm 45. And I think this is just a really uh, motivating and encouraging thing to keep in mind through this week, extending out of Hebrews chapter 1 as we strive to work through the entire Hebrew letter. Psalm 45. So the Psalms are a very reliable place to see how people in the past, through their faith, perceived the active working of God in their lives, even when the assurance of that activity was not as clear as it now is for us, since we now know Jesus much more clearly. But the psalmists, in the way that they meditated on God's word, as they looked at God's promises and experienced conflicts where they saw God delivering them and helping them and exalting them through all those things, they were able through meditation and faith to see things in God that, again, the Hebrew writer relates to Jesus' active ministry. In Psalm 45, these are three of my favorite verses in the Old Testament where this writer saw God working actively, I think, in the way that the Hebrew writer wants us to see it in our lives also. Psalm 45, verses 3 through 5. Psalm 45, 3 through 5. Gird on your sword, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. In your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. And in verse 6, the psalmist writes verses that the Hebrew writer quoted in chapter 1 that we've already read. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So going back to verse 3, did you catch what he's actually saying to this like figure he's poetically writing about? He's encouraging him to act and be active. He's encouraging him to be active in, in a battle and a conflict that he recognizes he cannot actually win or contribute to necessarily in the same way. So he sees that in verse 4, that there's this very specific cause that this messianic figure is fighting for, this God in verse 6, whose throne is forever and ever, he sees that he's able to ride on victoriously for this cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. 
And he recognizes in verse 5 that when the king goes out to battle, that nobody can stop him. His arrows, when they fall into the hearts of the king's enemies, they fall under him. And so in verse 3, it just increases the sense of excitement to urge him on to put on his armor, to gird on his sword, and to go out and fight. So the main exhortation from chapter 1, I think, is this. This coming week, just meditate on and dwell on the active and conquering role that Jesus has, not only in your life, but also directed toward the lives of those around you. Don't just see Jesus as a king reigning in heaven distantly, but strive to understand Jesus as someone who in a very close and near way is working and conquering actively through each of us living godly and righteous lives. Just like in Hebrews chapter 13 when he was urging the, right, or the readers to understand that God is striving to equip them to do what is right in his sight as he works what is pleasing in his sight for his glory. So I just encourage you this week to strive to apply the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 45, 3 through 5, urging Jesus to work and to contribute to that work simply by surrendering to his purpose uh, in the way that you live. Um, So if there's anything um, that needs to be made known before the church this afternoon um, as we bring our assembly to the close, um, whether it's sin that may need to be confessed or encouragement that's needed, Um, to continue to have resolve and diligence and faith. Um, Or if anybody's here who needs to obey the gospel, um, come forward while we sing an invitation song.